Transmitting from the lovely little city of Taylor, Texas, you are listening to Plow and Hose, a show dedicated to the joys and challenges of organic backyard gardening in Central Texas. I am your host, Julie Rydell. Welcome to the show. Hello, plant friends. Welcome to Plow and Hose. Thank you for joining me again today. Here we are creeping up on Valentine's Day and wow, what a difference a week makes during the winter here in Central Texas. Every few days we can have just completely different weather and around this time last week we had below freezing temperatures and a coating of stupid ice and then this week it's all melted away and we even had a few days where the highs were like really close to the 70s and i absolutely love that having reasonable temperatures and sunshiny days just makes life and everything just much more palatable um, for me i've been kind of feeling off the past um past month, few weeks. I don't know, just kind of gloomy and tired of things, missing my routines, missing some other things too. So the warmth and the sun really helped adjust my attitude a little bit. So I was glad, glad for that. Things are really starting to feel a little more in sync and I am glad for that. Around my yard, I'm able to enjoy the cool mornings they're still cool they're not like miserable cold i'm starting to see a lot more birds around the patio um they've been busy looking for places to start building a nest in the springtime my outdoor rabbits are enjoying the the mornings too they just seem um friskier when i go and check on them in the morning um it's nice to see them Also, thanks to the longer stretches of daylight, um, my chickens have started laying again and we're getting more and more eggs. Chickens will stop laying or greatly slow down laying eggs during the winter. They are light sensitive creatures and the shorter winter days and the cooler temperatures are signals for them to stop laying and let their bodies rest. As the days get warmer and we get more daylight, their little chicken bodies will respond to the weather changes and hens start laying much more regularly. I have cleavers popping up all over my yard too. And cleavers are another sign that spring is just around the corner. Cleavers, gallium, Aparine is an herb that grows all over North America and Europe. It goes by um, several different names, including goosegrass, white hedge, catchweed, and stickyweed. And it's kind of this bright green, obnoxious plant that sticks to everything whenever you brush um, next to it. For the most part, it's a low-growing and kind of kind of spreads and sprawls across the ground. 
Cleavers are covered in these very fine fibers that have little hooks on them, kind of like Velcro. And anytime that you walk like next to them and you brush up on them, the cleavers will stick to your pant legs. Cleavers are one of the first green plants that emerge in the spring. They have tiny star-shaped greenish-white flowers, which is an early source of nectar for small insects. When the flowers are pollinated, they develop round, small little seed pods that are also covered in those hooked fibers. Those little burrs, um, they're not really sharp or prickly like some of the other burrs that can be in our landscape, but they do cling to everything. And if you have like a dog or a cat that get out in the out in the cleavers, they'll just come back covered in those little um, burrs. And they're annoying to have to pick out. But anyway, back in the old days, cleavers were used to feed animals. And supposedly they're a favorite food for geese. I don't have a goose, but I do have a duck. So I think I'm going to offer her some and see how she likes it. Because if she really likes it, I've got a ton of it growing all over the place. And that would be really useful to feed her and get rid of the cleavers. I don't know. We'll see. I'll have to let you know, I guess. Cleavers were also used as bedding, um, like for people. Cleavers were gathered and dried, and then they were used to stuff mattresses. And because the plant material has all those grabby fibers and they're sticky, um, they actually compact really densely. So I can see the appeal for using cleavers in your mattress. It's really easy just to pull it up and roll it into a pretty dense ball. And it's softer than most grasses and straw. So I totally get it. I could, I could see that being something to consider if I was going to make a, like a pioneer mattress, I guess. Um, in traditional herbal medicine, cleavers have been used for a really long time, like centuries. It's considered a cooling herb and the juice can be used topically for like irritate the skin. And this is kind of gross, but fresh cleaver juice is supposed to be really good for drying up weeping moist wounds and then um, also for psoriasis. Cleavers contain a chemical compound that soothe inflammation. So if you have any sort of issues with minor wounds or psoriasis, then I don't know, it might be worth uh, taking a little extra time to learn how you can use cleaver juice to help with your skin issues. Of course, dried herbs have um, also have medicinal properties and dried cleavers have been used for other eternal, um, internal um, issues like related to um, body fluid movement. Cleavers have diuretic properties and also um, support the lymphatic system. They are reported to be 
good for supporting urinary tract issues, and then also uh, improving the flow of your um, lymphatic fluids through your lymph nodes. So that said, you know, fresh plant foods from your garden are generally safe. Um, You do have to be careful. There are some really, really poisonous plants out there that, but you know, overall, I really like the idea of natural, gentle, medicinal health care. But I'm also a modern medicine kind of gal. So maybe check with a healthcare professional or at least a really good trained herbalist before you start going crazy and experimenting with eating the weeds from your yard. I know that a lot of people enjoy a mostly weed-free yard, so if you have some plants like cleavers, dandelion, henbit, chickweed popping up in your lawn or garden this spring and you don't want them there, the easiest thing to do is just pull them out or mow over them before the flowers have a chance to set seed. Spring weeds like cleavers, chickweed, henbit, They all have a shallow root system and they pull up really easily. It's like no effort at all. Dandelions have a larger single tap root, but really they're not that hard to pull out. All of these weed type plants are actually really important sources of nectar for pollinating insects. These plants are some of the um, very few options for bees and other flying insects during this time of year, during late winter, early spring, before um, any other flowers um, begin to um, appear. And because of the insects, I don't really want to use um, synthetic herbicides in my yard. Nature is very symbiotic and plants and Creatures coexist for a reason. They need each other. So I don't get bent out of shape over plants um, like weeds being in places that I don't want them. Weeds are really just plants that are in spots that we don't want them to be. I mean, of course, you know, things can get out of balance. Too many weeds in the flower bed can make um, a lot of work for us, but It's really just effort on our part. Most weeds can be dealt with really cheaply and only really require some effort on your part, just a little sweat equity. And you absolutely do not have to go out and purchase toxic carcinogenic concentrated herbicides to deal with weeds. Synthetic herbicides that you just squirt on plants, you know, they're, they're effective. They do kill unwanted plants. They're effective, they're convenient, but they're excessive. They are just way too strong. And they can seriously screw up delicate soil biology. They're not beneficial to any of the soil microbes and they contribute to pollution. Once you spray herbicides on unwanted plants, they are effective in killing the plant. But those concentrated chemicals don't immediately break down into inert, neutral particles. They can actually stay and last for weeks in the soil after 
you've applied them, which is why they don't recommend that you plant anything new after applying um, herbicides, because you can actually unintentionally kill your new plants that you want to keep. Excess herbicides also find their way into the water table, and they can travel far beyond your little flower bed, so you, you really need to be careful. Actually, don't bother using them. When synthetic herbicides are used, um, just know they don't break down immediately, and they can cause a lot of collateral damage by unintentionally killing neighboring plants or new plants that you, you put in the ground, and you can actually screw up your soil biology and kill microorganisms. Studies have shown that synthetic herbicides linger in the soil and impact the soil ecosystem through reduced growth, cellular function, and even reducing the diversity of those microbes. Um, healthy soil is essential for healthy plants. There is just so much um, biological interdependence that takes place below the surface in our gardens and in the, in the dirt. And it's all microscopic, so we don't really, we can't see it. But these synthetic um, agricultural chemicals really can screw up your soil. Just don't use synthetic herbicides. You are listening to Plow and Hose on KBSR Black Sparrow Radio. If you are enjoying my show, I hope you'll go over to www.blacksparrowmusicparlor.com and check out the station and learn all about the great shows and music all coming out of our station, broadcasting from Taylor, Texas. While you're out on the internet, be sure to stop by the Plow and Hose Facebook page or the Facebook Instagram and like and share it with your gardening friends. Also, head over to wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the Plow and Hose podcast. If you like the flexibility of being able to play, pause, and rewind my show whenever you want, download some episodes and leave a review. It's really easy. Just click on the stars, type up a sentence or two. It's going to help others find the show. And it lets folks know that Plow and Hose is a pretty good show. So if you've already left a review, thank you so much. Last week on the show, I spent a lot of time talking about fruit trees because February is the best time of year for planting fruit trees in Central Texas. The selection is the best because it's the ideal time and local nurseries will have the best selection of bare root trees as well as potted um, fruit trees. All of them are are going to do well in our part of Central Texas. If you want to learn more about fruit trees and you missed last week's show, um, just go over and find episode 52 um, from last week. If you're interested in the traditional fruits like apples, pears, stone fruits, peaches, plums, those things, be sure to check out that um that podcast if you missed it. We can grow a handful of subtropical fruiting plants like pomegranates, loquats, and citrus here in Taylor and Central Texas. Pomegranates and loquats are 
easier to get established here in zone 8B, but with a little care and some education, we can grow um, a few varieties of citrus. Not gonna lie, I've struggled to keep citrus trees alive. I've tried to grow, I don't know, maybe four different types. I know it's possible, but it's not been easy for me. Um, part of it is selecting the right varieties and then also being very vigilant to protect them from the cold. South Texas is known for um, their citrus groves. Of course, they have a warmer climate and different soil type, but growing citrus has become more popular in Central Texas thanks to an increasingly warmer climate trend. I know, um, you know, like in spite of last year's terrible winter storm this time last year, overall, the annual temperatures have increased over the past decade, making it possible to grow some citrus here in Central Texas. Citrus trees are considered subtropical and central texas has kind of sort of been flirting with um, those subtropical temperatures for a while so if you're interested in growing citrus at home it is really possible to be successful with them if you are up to providing some extra protection from the cold the most important factor um, for citrus tree success in Central Texas is doing your homework and selecting the right varieties for our region. Most citrus trees will freak out from the cold when the temperatures dip below 28 degrees. They will definitely show signs of distress and they can die. Um, they'll freeze if it gets that low. So it's really important that you select a cold hardy variety if you want citrus trees at your house. Unfortunately, we are too far north to grow any of the usual grocery store citrus favorites like navel oranges, clementine tangerines, Persian limes, and just regular yellow lemons. We just don't have the climate for those varieties, but we can grow some citrus here with um, and be successful. Limes are the least cold tolerant of all the recommended citrus for Central Texas, but look for Mexican thornless limes. They are also sometimes called key limes. Those will tolerate temperatures down to 28 degrees. Satsuma oranges are a type of orange that we can grow here. Satsumas are mandarin oranges and um, they're pretty tasty. They, they've got a lot of seeds. It's likely the most cold tolerant of all the citrus trees. Also, Texas Rio Red Grapefruit is another um, citrus that's suitable for us here in Central Texas. If you aren't really interested in Satsuma oranges or grapefruits, then you can also try growing Meyer lemons, Calamondins, and Kumquats. Calamondins are also called acid oranges and that's because they are like super super sour they aren't sweet like navel oranges or tangerines and 
If you want to use the fruit, then use them like a lemon or a lime. Calamondins are about the size of a lime, and they do best planted in a container, um, you know, place it close to your house where they can take advantage of any heat reflected from your house. Container-grown citrus is a lot easier to move when the temperature drops. Kumquats are oval-shaped citrus fruits. Kumquats are about the size of a jumbo olive. Um, I think they're really cute. They're a nice, bright, happy orange, and they're completely edible, rind and all. The skin is kind of sweet, but the pulp and the juice in, inside is, is pretty tart. But um, when you eat it together, um, they're really quite ple- pleasant, and you can make marmalade with them, or you could candy them. Um, I, I, I like kumquats. Most citrus trees are self-fertile and will produce fruit with only one tree. They don't need a buddy tree in order to cross-pollinate. They do better if there are two of the same species, but it's not necessary. Satsumas, kumquats, and grapefruits do all right um, planted directly in the ground, but limes and lemons uh, need to be put in a pot so that you can move them when the temperature drops below 35 degrees. You need to make sure you plant citrus in the most desirable location in your yard too. Citrus trees need to be planted in a um, in a south-facing spot in your yard, and they need to have six to eight hours of sunlight a day. Planting them close to the house or structure is a good idea too, because hard surfaces will reflect heat and help keep your citrus trees warm. And it's also going to protect them from those cold northern winds that we tend to get. If the temperature drops below 32 degrees, you should cover your fruit trees for frost protection. Um, And you can also um, try using incandescent Christmas lights um, on your trees to help keep them warm. Incandescent light bulbs put out more heat than LED bulbs. So if you want to try to keep your citrus trees warm with string lights just make sure that they're incandescent and not led even if you aren't crazy about the citrus varieties um, that we can that we're able to grow here in central texas they can be very beautiful in ornamental trees citrus blossoms are very fragrant and some people just grow them so that they have the beautiful fragrant flowers and they they don't really care about the fruit and getting citrus to bloom is fairly easy for us here in central texas it's the fruit development um, that's a little more difficult and then of course the challenges with um, the colder temperatures citrus trees need a bit more attention than other fruit trees even after they get established because they are more cold tender than other fruit trees like pears and peaches and plums. You just need to make sure that they are protected from the cold and freezing temperatures. Citrus trees like to be fertilized once a month between February and October. If you have a brand new baby citrus tree, wait until you see some new growth before 
adding fertilizer. Even organic fertilizers can be too much for baby plants. So just wait until you see a bit of new growth, like maybe some new leaves starting to, to pop out. All plants benefit from a wide variety of minerals and trace elements, but all plants depend on three plant nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Those are the NPK numbers that are on fertilizer packages, and they're always represented in that order. Um, nitrogen is the leaf maker, phosphorus is the root maker, and potassium is the fruit and flower maker. Citrus trees like a quite bit more nitrogen than the other elements, so look for an organic fertilizer with slightly more nitrogen. You shouldn't have any problem finding an organic fertilizer specifically for citrus, but if for some reason you can't find one, just look for the an NPK formula that has slightly more nitrogen, something like 624. Synthet synthetic fertilizers will have a much higher NPK number. And just remember that more is not better when it comes to fertilizing. The synthetics are quick acting and they give a boost to your plant. But... The problem comes if you use them too often. What the plant doesn't use will either stay in the soil or drain off into the water table or into waterways. When they build up in the soil, you can burn your plant. So keep it simple with low dose organic fertilizer. And that goes for all your plants, not just citrus. Citrus trees do want a little more nitrogen, so just keep that in mind, okay? One last thing about citrus trees. Citrus trees are probably the most grafted fruit trees out there. Almost all commercially purchased citrus trees that we get are grafted onto the same rootstock. Lemons, limes, grapefruit, oranges, tangerines, even kumquats, all are grafted onto either sour orange or trifolate orange rootstock. Sour orange rootstock is well adapted to most soil conditions in Texas. Trifolate rootstock is very disease resistant and much more cold hardy. Trifolate rootstock doesn't do well though in highly alkaline soils and here in Taylor, that's what we have. We have that Blackland Prairie clay soil and it's very alkaline. So when you're out shopping for citrus, if you can, try to find out about the rootstock. Sour orange rootstock will do better in our part of the state if you, if you want to plant your citrus directly in the ground. If you're going to grow them in containers though, then it doesn't matter because you can use a raised bed mix or a potting soil specific for citrus. Both sour oranges and trifolate oranges um, they'll, they both grow fruit. They aren't very tasty. Um, they are sour and bitter oranges, and they actually have a lot of thorns. Now, if temperatures get below freezing, citrus trees can die back, and um, they may look dead, like the top parts, but when it starts to warm back up in the spring, 
a lot of these citrus trees um, will bounce back and start to put on new growth. So if you notice this about your um, tree, look at the new growth. If it's sprouting from the base of the tree below the graft line, then it's growth from the rootstock. Citrus rootstock is usually able to survive a freeze. Sometimes though the grafted um, parts are more temperature sensitive and that section will die. Here in Central Texas, Valentine's Day, February 14th, is the target date for planting and pruning roses. If you have established roses in the ground at your house, this is the perfect time to prune because roses are still dormant. If your roses are planted in a warm location, like close to the house, they may still have green leaves, but they're dormant. Like most plants, your roses take a break during the winter and rest. Once the weather starts to warm up as we head into March, roses will begin to actively grow. So you want to print your roses in this short window between dormancy and rapid growth. There are two general types of roses, climbing roses and shrub roses. Climbing roses are also called rambling roses. They grow really long canes and the roses bloom from previous year's growth. They, they only bloom once a year, so you need to wait until after they bloom to give them a really good pruning. Right now, for climbing roses, only remove dead or brittle limbs and then just do light pruning to maintain the shape. If you cut back climbing roses too much right now, you won't get roses this year. And that would be really sad because those climbing roses usually put out lots and lots of flowers all at once and they look really spectacular. So wait until after they bloom and then you can prune them back quite a bit. To prune, just remove any canes that are dead or old and non-productive. These canes are usually gray in color and they might have like a scaly look about them. They're just old. Most shrub roses, the ones that grow like a bush, um, they need some annual pruning to keep a nice shape and to have decent flower production. If you want more flowers, you should only trim your rose bushes to three to four feet tall. If you want bigger flowers though, you should cut back your bushes to two feet, like 24 inches tall. Be sure to remove any weak or crisscrossing canes and remove any suckers that pop up below the graft. Um, the graft is at the base of the plant. If you have roses that were there when you moved in and they aren't really thriving or they have consistent problems with insects or fungal diseases, you might want to consider removing them because they'll likely always have problems. If you have a bunch that are planted too close together, um, then you might think about removing like every other one and giving them some space. 
Roses need good air circulation. Otherwise, you can have issues with fungal diseases like black spot. Um, a lot of times when people um, put in roses, they want them to look really full, so they plant them close together, and that's like a terrible thing for roses. They, they need lots of good air circulation. So if you... Um, are interested in planting new roses, then I really highly recommend that you get familiar with earth kind roses. Texas A&M has spent years and years researching roses all across Texas, and they've determined which roses grow the best in our state. And they have, um, all the roses that they've studied and that they recommend and sell are called Earthkind roses. So if you are interested in learning more about the best roses that we can grow in Texas and you want to learn more about Earthkind roses, please go check out the Plow and Hose episode number four from last year. I went into a whole lot of detail about these special Texas roses. So if you're interested, go download and listen to that episode. All roses want eight hours of full sunlight a day. Here in Taylor and our part of Central Texas where we have the heavy black clay, we got to amend the soil for the roses and incorporate lots of compost. Clay is very dense and thick and it has a hard time dealing with water absorption. By adding compost, it's gonna help with drainage while providing nutrients to the soil, and it's gonna help retain the right amount of water for your roses. When you dig um, your planting hole, plan on adding lots of compost then. Put your um, rose in the hole, and then alternate scoops of compost with scoops of soil. So compost soil, compost soil, until your hole is filled. Be sure to add a nice thick layer of mulch around your roses too. Just three or four inches is, is perfect for your roses. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining me again. I appreciate y'all tuning in and joining me for Plant Talk. Have a great week. <laughs>